In today's episode, we talk about the word inspiration. In our churches, we love to use big words. We obfuscate our pedagogy through superfluous grandiloquence, manifesting hubris instead of demureness. See what I mean? Inconceivable. While I might have a speech impediment, I certainly do not want to have a preach impediment. These get in the way of God's message reaching our hearts and minds. Let's dig through those big words and learn something incredible. Before we get started in today's topic, let me remind you to go and check out EdenHollow.com. This is the company I started to start publishing some Bible study guides and spiritual books, but we're starting to branch out into some fiction and even talking to some other authors. We'd love to have you check out what's going on at EdenHollow.com. Now let's jump into today's episode. On today's episode, we're going to explore the word inspiration with a friend of mine named Cloyce Sutton. He is a preacher who preaches in the Memphis area at the Bartlett Congregation. He and I got to know each other when we both lived up there, and I was always impressed with Cloyce's ability to take topics and really discuss them in a serious manner. Never was I able to get the last word in a conversation. Not because Cloyce is one of those kind of men who always just wants to have the last word, but because he always had more interesting things to add to the conversation. He is a great Bible student, and he is so easy to talk to about Bible topics, and I think you'll see that today as we explore the word inspiration. He has been preaching for almost 40 years. He's married. He has three adult children. He has grandchildren, which he will tell you about if you ask, and I'm excited to be able to dig into this word with him today. Let's jump right in. Well, let's start with a definition. How would you define inspiration? The word inspired only occurs one time, or the word inspiration, depending on what translation you use, it only occurs one time in the New Testament, and that's in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God or given by inspiration. And the word that's used there is the Greek word theopneustos, and it's a compound word, and basically it just means God-breathed. The scriptures, that is the written word of God, is the very breath of God, or it's the words that come from God's mouth. And that's a starting point. Now, we tend to use the word in a much more conceptual way and a much broader way. When we talk about inspiration, we'll sometimes use the phrase the inspired writers uh, in reference to the men who wrote these books that comprise the Bible. Uh, Sometimes we include the notion of how they got the message. Sometimes we're talking about the process by which it was written down. Sometimes we include the message that was preached. So we use it in a much more broad sense than what Paul did in 2 Timothy 3. But the basic concept is that the written word of God, the Bible as we have it, is ultimately God's word put on paper. And that's the concept then of inspiration. So I know there are a lot of different ideas on both the method and the product of inspiration. Did God inspire every single word? Did God inspire just the general message and the writers had the option? of which words they were going to choose. Do we have any sense from Scripture 
sure, or from just our examination of how it all works together as to what the process and the product was. I believe we do. The Bible actually has a fair amount to say about its own origin. As I said, the word inspired is actually a word that's applied to the written text. Now, I don't think Paul would say that the sermons that he preached that weren't written down were uninspired. They, they were certainly the breath of God. We, as I said, use the phrase inspired writers, although that's technically inaccurate. The writers themselves were not God-breathed. Uh, the men who preached were not God-breathed. The message that they gave was God-breathed. So it's really more of a quality of, of what they preached and wrote. Nonetheless, I think the Bible does affirm that these men were guided in some way by God through the Holy Spirit to produce what they did. Um, so my basic thinking is that ultimately all of Scripture, and I would say every word, came to us ultimately by God. Now, how that works is a matter of some conjecture in some cases, but, but I'd point to a couple of passages that I think affirm that what we have came to us from God. Uh, for example, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter in the, in the latter part of the chapter is emphasizing his eyewitness credentials. He was there at the Mount of Transfiguration. He heard the utterance from heaven that this is my beloved son. And he said, we heard this utterance ourselves. And then he goes on to say in verse 19, we have the prophetic word more sure or made more sure. And I'm not sure if he's saying that his eyewitness credentials added weight to his prophecy or if he's saying that the word which they now have, the subsequent revelations after the departure of Jesus, if those were even more certain than what he saw. I'm not really sure what point he's making there. But he goes on to say in verse 20 and 21 of Second Peter 1, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. He's not talking there about the reader. He's talking about the speaker. The speakers did not present Paul's theology of the Christ event or you know, Peter's theology of the church. This was given to them by God through the Spirit. And he goes on to explain, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So in an ultimate sense... Everything we have in Scripture came from God. And I would even argue that the very words that were ultimately used by the writers came to them by God through the Spirit. Uh, and the other text I think is important on this point is 1 Corinthians 2. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 2, you know, chapter 1, Paul uh, points to the fact that there is some division among the Christians. And some of them are questioning the validity of his message. And he says in the opening part of chapter 2 that when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and the power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. When you think about 
Paul getting to the city of Corinth, that's Acts, that's his second journey. So you're thinking Acts 16, Acts 17, Acts 18. And starting back in chapter 16, at the beginning, the front part of his second journey, he's kicked. Uh, he, there's several places he wants to go, but the Holy Spirit won't let him. And then starting with Philippi, he gets chased from one town to the next. He, he tries to preach. He gets rejected. So my guess is that by the time he got to Corinth in chapter 18 of Acts, he's in a pretty bad mood and he's lacking in confidence. And he says, that's okay, because when I came to you, I wasn't confident. But what I did, I preached in the power of the Spirit. So ultimately, the Spirit was the one who guided him in, in what he had to say. And he goes on to say that the wisdom which he spoke was God's wisdom in a mystery. And then he goes on to say in verse 9, but just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. He makes the affirmation that there are some aspects of what he preached that man cannot know on his own. And that brings us to another aspect of this thing that we call inspiration, and that is the concept of revelation. Your point earlier, so did the, the humans say anything that was that didn't come to them directly from God? Is this part man? Is it part God? I don't believe that the Bible affirms that everything these men wrote was the product of direct revelation. What Paul's point is, there are some things we cannot know without revelation. And that was the thing that God gave to him, and that was the basis of his message. Uh, let me illustrate it in, in a few ways. Start with the concept of crucifixion. How do we know that Jesus' crucifixion made a difference for man's salvation? That's something that had to be revealed. Now, you look at crucifixion historically. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were crucified by the Romans throughout their history, especially uh, a couple of centuries before the first century, during the first century, a little bit after the first century. Romans crucified tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews. That's a historical fact. Everybody knew that in the first century. That's why when the Apostle Paul would talk about the cross, it was a scandalous, horrible thing, especially for a Jewish audience. And he talks about that in 1 Corinthians. The idea of a crucified Savior was foolishness from a human level because everybody was familiar with crucifixion. So how did God take a crucified man and turn him into the world's Savior? That's something that men could not figure out on their own. That's something that God had to reveal. How is it that on a Friday, somewhere uh, around A.D. 30, outside the city of Jerusalem, there were three men that were crucified. Of the hundreds of thousands who were crucified, how is it that the man in the middle, his death made a difference? And that's something that could only be revealed. We know we, we know about crucifixion. We know about the history of it. That's something we can see by observation. But in this case, it was divine revelation that pinpointed the one man and the significance of his death. I, I read somewhere uh, years ago, it's estimated that in the history of, of uh, in human history, there have been 106 billion people who have ever lived. How do we know that Jesus of Nazareth's death was the only one that could save us? Of the hundred, we all know people who have died. That's observation. But Revelation says that Jesus' death 
made a difference for mankind's salvation. So that's the difference between knowing something by observation and having something revealed to us because we had to have it. Um, let me give you one other illustration just from, from Luke. Um, Luke, in Acts chapter 20, 21, scholars marvel at how accurate Luke's travel narratives are. It's clear that Luke was an experienced traveler. And one hint that you get of this is in Acts 21, in verse 3, when we came in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we kept sailing to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Did God have to reveal to him that that was his left side? I don't think so. Uh, if that's the case, then Luke was an absolute idiot. Uh, Luke knew absolutely nothing, but he was an experienced traveler. He had been to Cyprus before. He had sailed past Cyprus. He knew that was his left side. So I would say that there are some things that God did reveal, things that we are not capable of knowing. But at the same time, the human writers used the languages they were familiar with. They used the geography, the history, the things that they knew already in telling the story about our redemption. When you look in the book of Acts, there is a similarity in the content of the sermons. It doesn't matter who's preaching it, whether it's Paul or Peter or whoever else. When they were dealing with Jewish audiences, there's kind of a paradigm to their sermons. There's certain points that all of them bring out that all of them seem to emphasize. And I would think that after a while, it would almost be second nature to them uh, as far as what they understood about Christ, what they understood about the message. So I don't have any problem thinking that, as you pointed out, and as Matthew 10 points out, ultimately it was the Spirit of God speaking through them, but at the same time, I don't think it's a denial of human intelligence or human experience or anything like that. In Matthew's Gospel, for example, in chapter 22, uh, when uh, the last week of Jesus' life, They've been trying to stump Jesus all week with trick questions. He's answered every one of them. And then at the end of chapter 22, he has a question for them. And so he says in Matthew 22, verse 42, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. He said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying? David in the Spirit. So he's acknowledging that the Spirit's guidance in what David said. If you look at the parallel in Luke's account, Luke 20, it says in verse 42, for David himself says in the book of Psalms, therefore David calls him Lord. He doesn't mention the Spirit. In other words, the biblical writers were perfectly comfortable saying that when someone spoke from God, sometimes they would indicate that it is the Spirit who's driving the message. At other times, they could just say, it's the human speaking. So I think even the Bible itself was comfortable with the idea that God is the ultimate author. God is the one guiding. At the same time, you've got the human voice who is doing the actual speaking. So I, I think there's a duality to it. As you read through the scriptures, I think you've got a lot of hints that the process by which these books were written is probably a lot more complicated than what we might first thing. The process of writing, you get hints in the scripture that it was a much more complicated process. And there were human elements of decision made in it. For example, second and third John, uh, John's two short letters. At the end of each one, he says, I've got other things I want to say, but I'm not willing to say them now. Mm -hmm. 
apparently John made a conscious decision about the brevity of those letters. There was more he wanted to say, more he could have said, but he chose not to include that. Nonetheless, we would say it's a spirit-guided document. Mm -hmm. uh, another example comes from um, the Old Testament. There are about four dozen references in the Old Testament to external sources. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and there are about 20 such sources listed. For example, Numbers 21, verse 14. You know, this is recorded in the book of the wars of the Lord. Well, that's obviously not a book of the Bible, but apparently the Jews kept some kind of record of God's people's conflicts. Uh, Joshua chapter 10, 2 Samuel 1, the book of Jashar. I have no idea who Jashar was, but he kept a book and there are references to it. First uh, Kings eleven forty one the the book of the Acts of Solomon. Well, we think of First Kings as the Acts of Solomon, but my guess is it's a reference to a royal archive, yeah. where you, you've got just here's everything the official list of everything that that Solomon did, and I'm getting the impression that the writers of Kings and Chronicles and Samuel at least drew some of their information from that, and that's not inconsistent with the concept of inspiration. My favorite example, uh, one of my favorite examples, is from Daniel chapter 4, which is an entire chapter written by a pagan. And it's written in a first-person narrative point of view, and Nebuchadnezzar is saying, let me tell you about an experience I had. And it's included in Daniel's book. So this is not Daniel speaking about Nebuchadnezzar. This is an actual thing that Nebuchadnezzar himself spoke and or wrote and it gets included in what we call scripture and i don't think I, my personal opinion is that nebuchadnezzar truly believed in the one true god i don't think it was just he thought god this is not like a facebook like this is not just hey your god is really cool i think that was a statement of faith in daniel chapter 4 otherwise what's it doing as part of scripture um, and, and I think that, that that's a powerful thing, but it's a record written by a pagan and it's included in scripture. So you've got all kinds of examples of that, especially in the Old Testament. As far as how the books of the Bible came into existence, we actually have one record of that, Jeremiah 36. Jeremiah 36, again, is one of my favorite texts because of what it tells us about the nature of how the Bible came together. The entire the entirety of Jeremiah 36 is about a scroll that Jeremiah writes and delivers to the king Jehoiakim. Now it says, In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll and write on it all the words which I have spoken to you concerning Israel and concerning Judah, and concerning all the nations from the day I first spoke to you from the days of Josiah even to this day. So you start out, he says, I want you to write everything you've been preaching. Now, if you look at the dates on there, that, that's a pretty long period of time. Uh, the, the first reference there is to the, the date that he's supposed to do this is in 605 B.C. At this point, he's been preaching for 22 years. Now, I don't know about you. I'm, I'm bad about not filing away my sermons and sometimes my sermon notes are just kind of this scribbled mess. Mm -hmm. He hadn't written down a thing. He hadn't written down a sermon outline for 22 years. And God says, I want you to write down everything you've been preaching. 
This is the beginning of the book of Jeremiah. That's the significance of Jeremiah chapter 36. And if you read the book of Jeremiah carefully, you see references to other documents, other portions of documents, other things that Jeremiah has preached and they got written down, which suggests that over the 40 some odd years that Jeremiah preached, his book came into existence over decades rather than in a single moment. I think that's how Luke's gospel and Luke's travel narratives in, in Acts came into being. He tells us at the beginning of his book that this is something he researched carefully. He consulted eyewitnesses, which says he wasn't an eyewitness of much of this, but he consulted eyewitnesses. And then he made some kind of decision about how it's laid out. I've had people ask often over the years, like with the Psalms, you know, here are prayers some of the time to God. Does that mean that God is giving us an inspired prayer from the mind of man back to God, but from God to us? Like, how does that work? It, when there is a directional conversation right. taking place, how, you know, that is not thus says the Lord, like you have in the prophets or you have in the commandments, you know, that is conversation to God, not from God. How does that work when it comes to inspiration? You, you talked about uh, in Second Timothy, Paul several times, I charge you with this. And I, I agree with you, he is speaking by God's authority. Uh, another illustration of that is in First Corinthians 7, where he mm -hmm. gives my opinion. Yeah. which clearly means that this is not binding in the same way that a commandment of the Lord is. But nonetheless, in this God-breathed document, Paul slips in his opinion. So clearly that kind of thing exists. Uh, an example that I, I tend to think about uh, in Psalm 51 in verse 4, when David says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's not the Holy Spirit's experience of sin. That is David's experience of sin. Yeah. And, and that is very much a prayer that David is offering to God. And so uh, clearly it is David's emotions, David's spirit, David's concerns, David's understanding of, of how he has sinned against God. And yet, if, if we've taken those other statements about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit superintended that process in a way that what David wrote was accurate and what David wrote was useful for the purposes, say, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So you, you've got, I think, the overarching concept in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that inspiration is a guarantee that, that these documents help us in certain ways. And then you've got the specific examples of, of a variety type, a variety of, uh, of different types of documents, uh, and many of them do reflect human thinking, human experiences. So one of my, uh, and, and this might be a cop-out of the uh, explanation, <laughs> but it's the one I, I have to. many of those. <laughs> oh, I, I, you know, we do our best. I mean, that's, that's really all we can do on some of this. You know, you've got passages like Psalm 51 that are so obviously a, a an outpouring of a man's heart in regards to his sin, his guilt, and his shame. You know, and obviously, as you said, that's, that's not the Holy Spirit's experience, that's David's experience. And then you get passages like Psalm 22, 
where Psalm 22 seems to also be an outpouring of a pleading heart. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And and here you've got a very uh, just kind of open plea to God. But as you start reading through Psalm 22, you find all these messianic prophecies that are spoken of in a very personal nature as if David is experiencing these things. Does that mean David had his clothes literally divided and, and, and gambled for? Does that mean David really counted all his bones? Or is he just being emotionally expressive and then God guided his expression in a way that it could be used as a messianic prophecy later on? That's where you start getting into some complication in here of how does man putting words together, being guided by the Holy Spirit and turned into messianic prophecies, how can all of those things be true? And my answer, this is where the pop out comes in, is only by God. <laughs> With God, yep. nothing is impossible. And, yep. and, and that's where I go back to, you know, some of this, I don't know that we're capable of understanding other than trusting the promises which say all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. Yes, and that, that's an excellent point. Um, I was just thinking, as you said that, I was thinking about First Peter chapter 1, uh, speaking about their salvation in verse 10, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of this grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Did they know what they were talking about? And, and the answer is kind of yes, kind of no. They didn't have the full story. They knew that there were some of the things that they prophesied that went beyond their time. I think about Deuteronomy uh, chapter 18, which I think is one of the most fundamental passages that we need to understand if we want to grasp biblical prophecy. So in Deuteronomy 18, it starts out with a list of sorcery and wizardry and all this stuff. He said, when you get in the land, don't mess with that. And then immediately he says that God would raise up a prophet like Moses. And the connection between those two halves of the chapter is there's a lot of false ways to try to apprehend the mind of God. Sorcery, uh, necromancy, wizardry, spells, all of those things. That's the wrong way to do it. You need to wait for a word from my prophet. And then as Moses continues to speak, is he just talking about the institution of prophecy? Because some of what he says suggests that here's a test for the prophets. How do you know if a prophet is true? But then some other things he says makes it sound like, okay, he's actually talking about the prophet, and that's certainly how the New Testament applies it. It takes the language of Deuteronomy 18 and says, Moses was actually predicting Christ. And I think it's both things. He's, he's telling us about the institution of the prophets, and Moses was kind of the starting point of that but it's also talking about one who would fulfill the ideals of the biblical prophet in Christ. And I, I get the sense that Moses has a sense maybe of both, although how clearly he saw that, uh, I, I doubt he fully understood all the implications of it, but he seems to be understanding that 
far beyond his own time, there's going to be prophets that come and there's going to be an ultimate prophet who comes. Yeah, the purpose of inspiration is just to assure us that the scriptures will accomplish God's intended purpose. Uh, and the intended purpose, if you if you look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, I think sometimes it's good to read it backwards. What's the ultimate thing that we're supposed to get out of those two verses? That the man of God may be complete or perfect, uh, equipped for every good work. God wants us to take the scriptures, become what we're supposed to be, and then do something about it. He wants us to act on the words that he's given to us. Now, you back up to the previous verse. How is this accomplished? It's accomplished by teaching the scriptures, by using the scriptures for reproof or proving again the things that we believe, for correction, correcting whatever errors we have in our thinking or our living, and then training for the purpose of righteousness. So the ultimate purpose is that we will be complete, lacking nothing, doing the things that God wants us to do. He uses the scriptures in those four ways to accomplish that task. And then that is why the scriptures are inspired. That's why we have these written documents that came to us by God. So I think it's helpful sometimes to look at those verses backward. As you said, what's the, what's the end game? The end game is that God wants us to be everything he wants us to be. And the way he has accomplished that is through the medium of the written word of God. And that doesn't discount uh, how the Spirit operates on us or anything. It doesn't discount God's providence. It doesn't uh, discount using the wisdom of other Christians and that kind of thing. He's just saying that God gave us the scriptures to accomplish his ultimate task of trying to make us into the people that he wants us to be. The purpose of inspiration is that God is using his word to make us into everything he wants us to be. And that makes the Bible worth exploring. That's why we do this podcast. We want to help you be all that God wants you to be. We want to help you understand the words of Scripture so that you can apply them to your life, so that they can make a difference, and so that they can help you grow as a Christian. Thank you for sticking with me today for a little bit of a longer than normal episode. But I hope you learned a lot, and I hope it challenged you in a way that has allowed you to approach Scripture with a little more seriousness and a little more enthusiasm. If we can help you in some way, or if you've got words you would like us to explore here on Preach Impediments, reach out to us at preachimpediments.com. You can find our contact information there, and you can also find past episodes. Go back and listen to episode maybe you've missed, or go back and listen to ones you want to listen to again. Share them with others so that we can get the message of God, this inspired word, out to as many people as possible. Thank you for listening. Until next time.